In packaging, everything is changing. Let's hear why diversity helps innovation. Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen. Rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Hey there, welcome to episode 104. Today's conversation is all about innovation and diversification at a six-generation family business based in the English Lake District. Richard Burnett is Head of Technology and Innovation at James Cropper, a prestige supplier of custom-made paper products to many of the world's leading luxury brands, art galleries and designers. Richard oversees the technology and innovation function at James Cropper with projects including the colourful moulded packaging proposition and the acquisition of technical fibre products Hydrogen, a world leader in green hydrogen technology. Richard has a degree in paper science and worked for UPM for 12 years in operational technical supply chain and sales. Richard joined James Cropper Paper eight years ago as technical sales manager where he led the implementation of the cup cycling program, introducing the world's first upcycling process for takeaway coffee cups. I first met Richard when we both spoke at an investor event for Castlefield Investments a few years ago. I'd already added James Cropper's cup cycling project to my case study database after reading about the new technology making it possible to delaminate the synthetic lining that prevented recycling for takeaway coffee cups, and we'll hear more about that later. We discuss the challenges facing the packaging industry and how James Cropper is both innovating and diversifying, with developments in speciality paper, bespoke luxury packaging, and advanced non-woven and electrochemical materials. We'll hear about developments in materials, in packaging design, and in manufacturing technology. Let's meet Richard Burnett, and I'll catch up with you afterwards to share what I took away from the conversation. First of all, could you tell us a bit about James Cropper and what it does? Okay, so um, so I work for, for James Cropper. We are um, a speciality um, paper manufacturer and advanced materials group. So... We've been around since 1845, as you mentioned, on the the west side of the Pennines, um, just outside of Kendall, close to Windermere, on the end of, of the edge of the Lake District National Park. And we've um, been producing um, speciality paper um, and advanced non-woven products for, for most of that time. Um, we've The site where we have um, has, has been here since that time in 1845, but there's been industry here um, since well before that. And originally um, it was a site that was used for dyeing wool um, and then eventually moved through to to manufacturing paper. And over the years, what we've done is we've developed niche markets to produce high quality 
um, relatively low volume products in the markets that we work within. So it's from a, a paper making perspective, we're relatively small, relatively boutique, but we, we add value in terms of the way that we manufacture and the the manner in which we can produce bespoke products. Mm. And for those who are not in the packaging industry, perhaps you could tell us what on earth non-woven products are. <laughs> well, so so non-wovens, um, our technical fibre products business was born out of um, the paper business. And essentially, um, the non-woven business is around um, producing paper-like substrates from non-cellulosic um, fibres. So essentially, um, instead of using um, wood fibre that's been pulped, We'll, we will use carbon fiber, aramids or glass fiber to produce veils, which are then used as constituent parts in a number of different um, market areas, whether that's from uh, fuselages for um, the latest um, aerospace technology through to wind turbines, satellites. So a huge um, array of um, areas where small amounts of our products are used. Um, and particularly in the recent past, we've seen a, a significant growth within the market for hydrogen fuel cells. So essentially a paper made from something other than wood that has um, a huge amount of functional properties that can be used. So uh, so that's been a really big growth area for us. Um, the business itself started up around 35 years ago, and we've seen rapid growth in this in this last 10 years, and it will continue to see growth uh, in the future. Mm, wow, that sounds amazing. I had no idea. Um, James Cropper were doing that kind of thing and when you when you talked about a few of those materials and, and mentioned glass um, I was thinking perhaps it's similar technology to making paper from stone um, which was one of the first kind of left field things I read about in circular economy terms I don't know eight or ten years ago because it um, you know apparently can be recycled for much longer than than wood fiber it could be yeah it's um it's stone is not an area I'm particularly familiar with, but certainly there's um, there's a huge amount of applications for this kind of fiber mm. um, and its versatility and kind of understanding what we can bring in terms of um, um, technical developments with, in partnership with customers is, is absolutely key for us. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like there's a wide range of things to um, potentially get into there. So thinking about the circular economy aspects of the packaging, what kind of things have you done so far? Okay, so um, so moving away from the, the non-woven kind of area, um, in terms of our paper business and our colour form business, um, we developed technology um, around about 10 years ago to um, recycle um, laminated paper materials. So essentially paper laminated to um, polyethylene um, substrates. And... We did that at the time because we recognised that um, that it, those materials were deemed as being too difficult to recycle at the time. So essentially, there was a, um, a whole um, significant volume of material that wasn't being recycled that there was we saw value in. So we developed um, a technique to essentially separate the laminates. Um, so we did that, and we concentrated on um, bringing in. Um, essentially waste from converters who make packaging. So we would take their waste and then eventually we move that through into working together with a number of brands to bring in used coffee cups that we would recycle in our process. 
and then we would put them that fiber into our products so um that fiber has ended up in any number of products from uh, greeting cards for for hallmark to um, boxes for packaging for uh, for Burberry or for Lush, so there's a huge number of different areas where that that particular fibre source has been used. Um, so we were really one of the trailblazers in that area, and there's there's more to come in the near future with it. And then secondly, one of the big areas we've been working in is um, developing our moulded fibre business, which is called Colourform. And with that business, um, we produce um, molded pulp packaging that is um, bespoke for particular customers and essentially it's a it's a mono material um, and when we first started we were kind of using it as it may be used for inserts for packaging for various different things to to replace um, plastics that would be used on the inside of gift boxes let's say or for for different fmcg kind of goods but what we've seen over time is that the demand has kind of shifted towards um using the moldy pulp packaging to be that the outer the complete packaging product so then really you could be m removing the volume of primary packaging and potentially secondary packaging as well so it's just reducing the amount that's that's needed so we've uh, we've done a lot of work within the um, cosmetics and um, um, also the champagne space we've been working in in recent in recent times so yeah so those are some of the the kind of areas that we've been working on mm. so just to get clear on that then not only are you replacing potentially a um, multi-layer laminated material that's really difficult to recycle with a mono material that's much easier, but also because of the properties of that um, moulded packaging, you're then able to help the your client remove additional layers of secondary or, um, I guess, potentially even, well, you know, combining um, primary and secondary packaging. Um and uh, just leaving, you know, main, maybe the transit packaging. So yeah. multiple advantages from that then in terms of resource efficiency and the potential for recycling. Absolutely, there is. And, you know, what the way that the business is going, we we have, we've really developed the, in terms of it being a mono material, but in terms of what's achievable from producing um making sure the product can fold and it can um it can close so we have clasps that close the product so there's nothing else needed there's no kind of um um kind of attachment required other than the, the material itself so these things mean that it you know that that fiber that then can go directly back into the the paper recycling stream so it can be fully recycled so it's uh yeah it's a real step forward in terms of the um molded packaging Mm. Yeah, that sounds, uh, you know, like a, a game changer in terms of the um, reducing the complexities. Um, I was talking um, just the other day about laundry liquid and um, <laughs> my my pet hate of the funny shaped bottles. Um, and then, you know, with a hole in the middle for some other kind of material that's that's got a dispenser in it like you, you know why would you need a dispenser with every bottle but just all the kind of the waste and the complexity of it um is it's is just so frustrating so um that's clearly one of the challenges and trends is to you know move away from these laminated materials and um the need for 
multiple materials to do different things in packaging. What other kind of challenges are facing the packaging industry at the moment? Okay, so so one thing we see, I guess, from from our standpoint, so we're um, as a so as a so as a manufacturer of materials that goes into packaging, but also as a recycler of packaging materials, there are kind of there are a few challenges around at the moment in the kind of immediate term um, that are becoming apparent to us. So one of one of those is so on the recycling side of our business, um, we as I mentioned before, developed a technique to separate laminated materials. Um, now, what we're seeing is, is that because of the um, the drive to use non-fossil-based materials to, to develop new kinds of barrier coatings, um, we're seeing a situation whereby we're moving from a, a market where so if you consider the kind of the, the whole ecosystem of the material in the in in the market in Europe. Where, whereby you have a kind of uh, you have a, a material that's difficult to recycle, but it's one type of material. So you have a paper, and you would have polyethylene. Now, what we're starting to see is that through the development of new types of coatings, there are multiple um, types of new coatings coming to the market, and some of these are behave different. Well, essentially, they behave differently to one another. Um, so they don't all behave in the same way. So if you look at it from a recycler's perspective, we're moving from a situation where you have one type of material that you need to, there's a challenge to recycle, but you can you can manage it, to a situation where there are multiple kinds of materials out there. And we don't necessarily know which one might kind of, let's say, win the day or which will become the dominant material in the market in the future. So it becomes very difficult then to, understand how you're going to develop your process to be able to manage it so that's one of the one of the big challenges that we have at the moment um and then i guess kind of more on the the packaging manufacturing side so when we make a product um we will supply it into a reel or a sheet and then it would go to a, a converter to be made into a bag or a box or whatever else it, it may be um and what we've done recently is is that we've we've um, launched a scheme called Fiber Blend, which is about how we bring our different fibers together um, to make the products that our customers require. And one of the reasons for this is that there is a there's kind of always a um, this sort of challenge between a virgin fiber and a recycled fiber, and which is seen as more more valid, which is which is better for want of a better word, and. The answer for us is that they're both they both have their valid points, and they both have their drawbacks. So, for us, it's about communicating how we can bring those fibers together as best possible to to reach what's needed for a customer. Um, so, what we've seen in the recent past is there is a real drive in the market for um, post-consumer recycled materials. Um, and they're not always the best answer in terms of um, the, the quality that may be achieved from a product. So it's about that balance between using uh, virgin materials and using recycled materials. Obviously, the material that we make is all recyclable in itself. So we'll go back into the the um, kind of the, the paper loop. Um, but, yeah, we need to consider what the best option is 
in terms of um, in terms of fibre. But at the moment, it's very much moving towards recycled. But we need to make sure there is enough good recycled fibre in the market for us to use. So that's the that's the challenge. Mm. And I guess for people again who might not be familiar with the challenges of packaging, it sounds as if it should be really easy to just make everything from recycled content. But of course, some things need to be particularly strong and you know subject to lots of um, abuse, for want of want of a better word, through the supply chain and you know between um, the original distribution centre and finally getting to them, getting them to the point of use. So you know, it's, in that way, it's not as easy as it as it seems, is it? No, it's not. And I guess you know. It- Paper and and board is a, a real success story in terms of recycling in Europe. So I think the latest numbers are about seventy one percent of uh, of paper and fiber is is recycled, which is which oh, there's a, all of there's a, still a long way to go. It's it's one of the more proven um, kind of scaled um, um, markets out there. The challenge is is that in terms of paper fiber. Um, as you mentioned at the, the kind of the, the top of the podcast, uh, as you recycle over time, the the quality of the fibre degrades the more it's recycled. So you always need to have new fibre coming into the system to to make sure that the the quality is maintained. And that's essentially what we're doing. We're kind of at the the kind of the top end of the supply chain that will put that virgin fibre in that would then you know, it would be recycled into a newspaper that then might be recycled into a, a corrugated box, into a cardboard tube, and again and again and again. So it'd be recycled to around about 20 times. Wow. So, um, so yeah, so it's, by the time it leaves us, it's not the end of the story by any stretch. Mm. Um, but there's um, there's still that requirement for virgin fibre to come in. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, that that's a, a long-term challenge for the, for the whole of the industry really uh, that needs to be understood so one thing that we're seeing and kind of moving outside of our kind of direct realm of influence but the the decline in the use of um graphic papers so newspapers magazines um causes challenges in the supply chain for um corrugated materials let's say so um there is less fiber around now than there was maybe 10 15 years ago as, so, as things yeah. have moved online and i guess as exactly. you know i've i've seen a few of the publications i get um that have kind of you know downgraded the paper quality um the um the guardian recipe um pull out every week was one one recent one where it suddenly you know the paper's now really thin and um you know which is probably a good thing because i'm guessing most people don't keep the whole thing yeah, um, but uh, yeah, it was it was quite noticeable. So I guess there's a cost pressure to that, but there's also you know the I'm guessing the more recycled content you're able to use, the lower the um, the kind of feel and quality of the of the end result. It it can be yeah. I mean I guess the as you recycle more, the paper becomes denser essentially. Right. So um, so you will see, you will start to see a difference the more it's recycled, but it's particularly around um strength that's mm. that's a challenge so your your supplement may not fold as well or it may not it may not behave in completely the same manner so it maybe if you think of the printing presses that produce tens of thousands of recipe books per hour 
then that really affects the performance. So it's those kinds of considerations that have got to be made. And obviously there's a cost point on that as well. So mm. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I guess there's all the all the impl- we won't get into it, but I'm just imagining all the implications of the um, you know, if it gets ripped in the machine then you've lost, you know, production time and all the rest of it. Exactly, yes, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that can have an impact. Yeah, more yeah. and more complicated. <laughs> so um what about other types of packaging material? Um when we were talking ahead of the podcast, uh, we were discussing something you were doing with waste textiles. Yes. So we've been working um, over the last 12, 14 months um, on a product that uses um, um, recycled uh, cotton um, as uh, the primary raw material. Uh, the grade's called Rydal um, Apparel. And it's it's intended for um for use in the in packaging market and essentially we're working with um uh, a company based in sweden called renew cell and they have developed a process to um take um post consumer used cotton um so as for, as for instance denim um and then they can process that and produce a pulp that that we can use to produce paper or can go to be used um, to manufacture as dissolving pulp to manufacture viscose. So, um, so it's the first kind of really significant scale um, um, production facility producing this kind of material. So it's quite interesting to see the progress they've made and the, the kind of the, you know, how um, how big that plant is. And I think they've already announced that they're going to double the size of the processing as soon as they can so they're moving from around about 60,000 tons a year to about 120,000 tons a year so it's a really significant um investment and for us it's a good indicator to to start to understand the kind of demand that we might get for um non um kind of non wood fibers um and also to kind of start to see how that affects our process what sort of value um there is in in that kind of um in that kind of fiber um because obviously the world is changing and we need to consider sources of fiber other than kind of the traditional wood pulp that we might use that we normally buy in from um from scandinavia so it's kind of a bit of a toe in the water to to understand how it might look for us and so far the, the response has been fantastic we've had some some really great inquiries um and it's um given us um some nice attention um but yeah it's um it's understanding what that might mean for us in the future in terms of in terms of growth and doing things a bit differently mm. yeah i guess there are all sorts of different unforeseen consequences that could come up from that in in terms of um, you know what's going to happen to the textile industry? Will the te- will the textile industry suddenly up its game from the recycling being probably less than one percent worldwide of <laughs> of textiles going back into textile uses? Um, you know it's 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 hardly likely to happen overnight, is it? But if they really got their act together and started doing that, then I guess um, you know that could be one consequence. But I think I think we're probably um, not not in that we're not you wouldn't need to worry about that in the next five years or so no um, no but in, I, in terms of the recyclability of that so once you've made it into packaging is it then recyclable along with other packaging or does it need to go into a different stream 
Um, it's recyclable in the paper stream, so it can go back into um, the kind of um, standard household collections. So from that perspective, it's not an issue. Um, the only thing I would say on, you know, your point around the the fashion industry, it kind of it works um, in a number of different ways. So so you may have, like you say, if the, if the fashion industry kind of gets its act together and supply chains are built, it may it may mean that there are um, it, kind of opportunities for someone like us dries up, but also equally there could be big opportunity for someone like us as a as a as a user of fiber um the the kind of the the holy grail i guess is textile to textile recycling with no loss of quality with no loss of um the the functional properties whether that is entirely likely is another thing so maybe in time it is but you know we we don't know yet so for us it's an interesting area to kind of follow and and keep involved with and this as i said is just a it's kind of a starting point the other thing is um is that in terms of the fashion industry we, we're starting to see more of a trend towards the use of viscose and other materials and we may see in the future more of a um a strain on the the wood that we or the pulp that we use because it may go to other other uses in the future and we, we're looking maybe a long way out but those are the kinds of considerations that we need to have. So there may be more competition for that same supply. So yeah, there's uh, there's multiple things we need to think about. Yeah, every everything gets more complicated, doesn't it? The the more um, the more we try to improve things, the the more different considerations have to Absolutely, come into play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there anything else you want to say, Richard, in terms of the sustainability purpose and and focus of James Cropper? Well, I would say that, you know, the the recycling within the business and, and producing sustainable materials has always been key. And I think we're seeing kind of the next stage of that producing materials that go towards um, the the manufacture of green energy. So particularly the space of hydrogen fuel cells um, is kind of and, and also for you know, kind of wind turbines and associated technologies. That's a real area that we have expertise and we see we see growing in future years. So I think that's a that's key for us. And we will continue with the work that we do um in terms of our sustainable packaging materials. Um and yeah, we, we expect growth in that area as well. Just one thing to mention is is that, you know, as we kind of just over time we you know we we come up with we find new opportunities on a regular basis and one instance was that there is a, a manufacturer not very far away from us and we've just entered a deal with them whereby we take waste that they don't need and we put it into our process um and it's those kinds of things that when you're talking to people when you um when you're open to discussions and trying things that are a bit be a bit different can give you quite a lot of opportunities and we're, we're keen to do that. Mm, yeah, well, I look forward to what happens next on that then, because over the years, James Crop has been, you know, it's really pushed forward in, in a number of, of areas, um, not just around the packaging, but um, on employee well-being and supply chain and, and lots more. So given how long you've been focusing on these kind of circular improvements and so on, what have you struggled with and what surprised you 
in the in the journey so far? I guess in terms of what we struggled with is is that when by its nature in a, a kind of a circular um, project or program, um, there are multiple stakeholders, and what you may find and what we found was that at first we thought, wow, okay, we've got we've got solutions here. We can offer a solution to solve everyone's problem with what to do with uh, with coffee cups. But if you've and you, or we found like-minded companies who are also willing to do the same and to help in different areas of the supply chain. But if there's one company that or or sort of organization that is unable to help at that particular time, it can just slow everything down. So it kind of everyone being on board at the same time is difficult and you know it, that's where the struggle can come and it it moves a little bit slower than you might anticipate so mm. yeah that would be that would be one for me yeah that's really interesting and um yeah i'm i'm i've got a um a side interest in kind of uh, collaborations but <laughs> i won't go down that cul-de-sac right now we could be could be there for ages so in terms of when you you know when you're talking to other businesses that want to go circular or start something circular what's the number one lesson learned that you generally share with them um so from a perspective when we start talking to people i guess that um everyone has really great ambitions really brilliant ambitions um and to engage with different people on projects we have over the years has been fantastic what what we found of and I started to learn pretty rapidly is that things are never quite as big as you think they're going to be at first. So it's, um, and, and to recognize that and to be comfortable with it is key because it can be seem a little bit disappointing if it doesn't all take off straight away. And it, um, so to be, so when we've started working with companies on, say they wanted to send us new materials to be recycled, and they come to us and say, you know, we've got, we, we think we have hundreds of tons of this material and we've kind of, I am almost not dampen the expectations, but try and be more realistic about it. And, and we'll say, look, we will take less than that. We will try a small amount as, as you can give us as possible. So then we can start things moving. And it's about having a level of flexibility at first when things start, because generally think, as you start trialing and doing things a bit differently or collecting a new type of material for the first time doesn't really work to plan and you've kind of got to be willing to kind of be realistic in terms of your um uh kind of expectations but also be willing to adapt what you're what you're trying and that's the best way to make things work Mm, that sounds like really really good advice in all sorts of areas doesn't it it's kind of you know at the strategy level it's all about building your minimum viable products and i remember olio the people who developed the food app they started off with a little whatsapp group in their local area to see whether people would actually exchange food with other households um, yeah. and that was you know that was the kind of key thing that they thought they needed to prove before they spent any money on a on an app Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Kind of. There's there's one other thing I would mention as well is, and it, I guess it's more in terms of how, um, how you may sort of present yourself to your customers and um, stakeholders is there has to be a level of um, there has to be honesty in terms of what you're doing, and to 
so to use an example when when we first started with our cup cycling scheme um we knew that we didn't have a huge amount of volume because the the whole kind of supply chain had just started up so we 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 started with a limited number of projects and at first it seemed that we were kind of there may have been a slight impression that we were sort of holding back a little bit but it was because we didn't have that volume and then to explain to your sort of customers to say well actually you know we can we can work with you next but we need to make sure that we have that product in place and then when we're making it you can come and see it so you can come and see exactly what we're doing um and and that really helped in terms of and and almost it kind of worked out that then we had a material that was quite exclusive because there wasn't that much of it which created a demand in itself but the that level of that level of honesty in terms of how you go about doing things is really important because it's quite easy i think to um kind of make a claim that's sort of mostly true but then you you will only get caught out and mm. get caught out in the end and to be to be straight about things is much much better yeah and there was a recent a recent one a big international chemical manufacturer had said it was recycling training shoes or something like that sneakers into rubber for playgrounds um but reuters went off to investigate and you know did the did the thing of tracking things through the through the supply chain and none of it went into the into the yeah. supposed system and so yeah. if they just said you know we're starting small and um you know we're only going to be doing a tiny bit and scale it out from there then that would have been fine wouldn't it but they kind it of would. you know did the big pr and <laughs> and yes. then live to regret it yes exactly yeah 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 so richard is there someone you'd recommend as a future guest for the podcast so um I worked a lot over the last few years, and he's since moved to to new to a new business. Um, a chap called Oliver Rosevear, who um, is, I think, the sustainability director at Fuller's uh, Brewery. Um, so he has always been a, a really good advocate for the the for both the, the work that we did, but the work we did together. He was always very keen to work together with uh, with other businesses and organisations, and. He had a level of energy for making new things happen that um, always encouraged me. And I think, um, yeah, I think he would be a good person to get on. As I say, he's kind of moved into a new area, but I think, uh, yeah, he'd be very interesting for you to talk to. Mm, Thank you. I'll look him up. And moving outside the business, if you want to, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing to help create a better world, what would that be? Oh, so I sat there this morning thinking, what am I going to say to this? <laughs> There's all sorts of things. I think, I think for me, it's um, and I, I kind of thought, well, I think close to the business. And one of the things was the um, what you just mentioned about um, kind of uh, unsubstantiated claims, which just drives me crackers sometimes. But I think for me, the one of the the things to change the world is the the short termism that we see in politics um just on a four or five year cycle um it really concerns me because what goes through in the budget just yesterday could change with a with a, a change in power at the, at the elections and it we're not looking long term enough and i think that's a that's a real concern for me um so yeah if that if i could have a magic wand that's what i would do i'd make it everyone take a longer term approach excellent thank you 
And Richard, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and uh, James Cropper PLC? Okay, so uh, so our website is um, jamescropper.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so you'd find me on there, Richard Burnett. Um, and I'll be happy to, uh, to talk to anyone. I mean, you know, we've got a lot of exciting things going on here uh, and um, happy to share what we do and uh, always interested to talk to new people. So, uh, yeah. Great. Thank, thank you. you. And I'll put the links in the show notes so people can look you up. And is there anything else you'd like to add so that we can so that, you know, we've covered all, all the bases? I don't think so. No, I, I just really appreciate being asked on the on the podcast and getting to, to add my thoughts and our perspective. So, uh, no, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Richard. And thanks so much for taking the time to share all of those lessons learned. I think there's so much focus on packaging in terms of sustainability in the circular economy. And I know lots of people will benefit from the, the insights that you've shared. So thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. It was so interesting to hear about the culture, perspectives and forward thinking in a family business that's now in its sixth generation. Like many sectors, the packaging and paper industry is seeing pressure on resources and this is building up slowly. Some changes are a consequence of, chain of trends in paper and packaging, but others are new, driven by other sectors. For example, textile manufacturers switching away from fossil-based materials into cellulosic materials, which might come from trees or plants like hemp and bamboo. It's worth mentioning that James Cropper is very keen on reducing its footprint through a range of decarbonisation projects and ensuring that all its raw materials are ethically sourced, including all its pulp supplies from responsibly managed forestry certified to FSC and PEFC standard. James Cropper is building resilience through new product development and broadening its product range, including into green hydrogen projects and the non-woven materials Richard mentioned. We know that design is a critical aspect of enabling circular outcomes. When we discussed the cup cycling project, Richard went on to talk about the more recent changes in the design of single-use cups, with companies switching to several different lining materials. But that now means there are multiple different problems to solve at the recycling stage, and some of those materials could end up contaminating the existing recycling flows. In episode 100, I talked about how these new generation materials can increase complexity and trigger unforeseen consequences. Businesses risk solving one upstream problem, but creating new problems further downstream. How do we overcome these kinds of issues? Maybe it's about industry collaboration on standards. Maybe it needs some better way of identifying the materials in products, recognisable by automated systems. Richard explained that the paper and packaging industry is now competing for resources with textile manufacturers. And I thought it was interesting that James Cropper is also using recycled textiles to create packaging through its Rydal apparel range, using post-consumer waste denim to make paper for packaging. And it's important to mention that that paper is then recyclable through the normal paper recycling streams. Whilst that might not fit the ideal closed-loop model of textiles being recycled back into textiles, we also know that only around 1% of global textiles are recycled now. 
So until the textile sector gets its act together on recycling its own waste materials, turning post-consumer denim into packaging seems like a sensible step forward. What about the basics of packaging recycling? We learnt that there's a rule of thumb for paper products. The better the quality to start with, even if recycled, the better the quality of the end product. I followed up with Richard afterwards to get clear on this. Richard told me that for high quality paper, like greetings cards and glossy magazine covers, you'd probably need 100% virgin fibre. Slightly lower quality paper would include some recycled content. And by the time you get to newspapers, they can use 100% recycled materials. Then newspapers could be recycled into a folding box for transit packaging. When that's recycled, it might be suitable for a corrugated box. And the next ev evolution might be a cardboard tube. In our follow-up conversation, Richard also highlighted a common misconception about the use of timber for paper. In fact, the pulp for paper comes from the top branches of the tree, whilst the trunk is used for products that need strength and structure. I was impressed by the wide range of projects that Richard and the James Cropper teams are working on, thinking about future resource availability and risks thinking about ways to meet customer needs with fewer resources, and especially about how to reduce the use of virgin materials. The Colourform Moulded Fibre solution solves several problems for customers. Reusing materials from a problematic waste source, with designs that can reduce the types and amounts of packaging needed to protect the product. The moulded fibres and thermoforming help companies switch away from difficult to recycle plastic-based materials and yet continue to provide excellent levels of protection for the product. For a good long-term view, we need to include broader sources of information in our foresight. But how many companies look ahead at supply and demand? Whether there's a healthy future for their resources and how the needs of their customers are evolving. Maybe this philosophy is one of the reasons James Cropper has been adapting, innovating and successful for 180 years. We touched on the complexities of collaboration and afterwards I told Richard about a new book on collaboration by social psychologist Dr Deb Mashek. The book's called Collabor Hate, How to Build Incredible Collaborative Relationships at Work even when you'd rather work alone. The book's a brilliant read with lots of insights on why collaborations fail and how to rebuild those relationships. I've put a link in the show notes. So there you go, another episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our, our guest this week, Richard Burnett of James Cropper. And thanks also to Tracy Warmington for making the interview possible. As always, thank you for listening, subscribing and telling other people about the podcast. Subscribing and sharing all boosts our ratings and helps other people hear from inspiring people like Richard. You can find out more about Richard Burnett and James Cropper, follow them on social media and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen. 
through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn.